Welcome to From What If to What Next, your dazzlingly delightful companion on your journey towards becoming the imaginative being you long to be and that the world needs you to be. Here we hold firm to the fundamental idea that things can get better rather than just always getting worse, that human beings are capable of incredible things, that perhaps, just perhaps, we can do this. Here we believe Black Lives Matter protesters when they chant, I've been to the future, we won. And we repeat that like a mantra every day. I'll just mention, though, that we are only able to have this much fun and go on these expeditions of the imaginary because of the generous and quasi-mythical heroes who once a month throw three virtual pound coins in our direction that enable us to make these podcasts sound as great as they do. And in return, we give them our bonus Ministry of Imagination episodes, occasional extra goodies, and these episodes, the second they're released, why not join them? your imagination will be forever in your debt. Today we're talking about play, about kids, and about the places where we live. One author, writing in the 1920s, wrote of how, quote, the street is the cradle of the newborn babe and the nursery of the toddler and the playing field of the elementary school child and running wild in it is responsible for much of the vitality and the wit and the insatiable curiosity that are to be found animating every grown-up London crowd. I love that. And yet kids have almost entirely vanished from our streets. Retreating indoors in the face of the car's domination of our city spaces and a perception of the lack of safety, kids are all too often starved of play. No ball games here signs. Horrible noises only audible to teenagers to chase them away from sitting around new housing and commercial areas, the privatisation of public space. Cities are increasingly been designed around the needs of adults and capital rather than the needs of kids. So our question for today's episode is, what if we designed cities based on children's needs? We have two great guests to explore this with me today. Tim Gill is a global advocate for children's outdoor play and mobility and an independent scholar, writer and consultant based in London. He's the author of Urban Playground, How Child-Friendly Planning and Design Can Save Cities, which is a book I hope you'll rush out and buy having heard today's podcast, and the report No Fear, Growing Up in a Risk-Averse Society, which I also highly recommend. Tim is a Design Council Ambassador and Churchill Fellow, a former director of the Children's Play Council, now Play England. His client list includes the London School of Economics, Mayor of London and the National Trust, and he's a founding patron of the UK Forest School Association. And Alice Ferguson started playing out CIC with her neighbour Amy and is now its managing director and one of two executive directors on its board. Her role includes overseeing the organisation, developing new projects and talking up street play to anyone who will listen. Previously, Alice has worked mainly in the environmental and voluntary sectors, including for Sustrans, Friends of the Earth and Climate Works, as well as running her own organic food shop. Since being a parent, she's also been actively involved in community effort towards creating a more livable neighbourhood with a particular focus on children's independent mobility and their access to public space in the city. Wow. Welcome, both of you two, from What If to What Next. Thanks very much for having us, Rob. Yes, thanks. It's great to be here. 
Great. You're both extremely welcome. And I'd like to kick off uh, with the exercise we always start this podcast with by inviting you to step with me into my time machine. It's quite the feat of engineering, actually based on a terrible documentary I watched last Christmas on how to build a time machine. That's an hour of my life I am actually now able to get back. Actually, producer Ben and I took it for a test drive last night just to check it was all properly calibrated and ready for today. And we took it to 400 BC because Ben wanted to witness the moment when Democritus theorised the atom. And it was actually really quite an anticlimax. He sort of just lifted his head while he was writing went oh yeah that could work and then went back to writing so we went out for an ancient greek salad instead which made such a long journey worthwhile after all so tim alice do step in that's it there's just room for us all there we go it's a bit of a squeeze and i'll just set this dial here for 2030 and turn that on and wait for that to charge up okay off we go so do imagine as you look out of the little window here, that these eight years you're traveling through were a time of remarkable change in a way that was unimaginable in early 2022. And that the 2030 that we're going to arrive at in a moment isn't paradise, but it is the result of our having done everything we possibly could have done. A deep, as yet incomplete, but nonetheless very much taking firm and ambitious steps towards a remarkable transformation. Ah, here we are. Good. So as you step out into this world that has, in just eight years, been redesigned around the needs of children, I'd love to hear your reflections on, on how it is. What are, you, what are you seeing here? What does it feel and taste and smell uh, like in a way that's different to the world that we left behind in 2022? Do bring it alive uh, in our imaginations. Alice. Um, the first thing I notice is there are very few cars on the road um, and instead the streets are filled with people walking, cycling, talking, playing, just hanging out. Um, it's certainly not quiet. It's, you know, it's not a wasteland. It's, it's full of life. Um, and there are children out <laughs> on the streets um, independently of adults, um, just getting about their, their lives um, some of them are, are playing, some of them are just walking and some of them are just chatting to each other. And, and then, you know, you, you go into a housing estate, which previously had been a bit of a bit of a desolate kind of empty space. And it's full of children outside playing together, all ages, all backgrounds, making up games, using the space, responding to the space and weirdly nobody's shouting at them nobody's telling them to to be quiet or go home they're seen and they're heard and also in fact adults from the community are just out and about sitting out enjoying the space enjoying seeing children out playing and kind of informally supervising the children playing but without interfering and letting children get on with being children beautiful thank you uh, tim it feels very convivial. I feel that there's a kind of easy acceptance that all these people that uh, I can see, that Alice is also seeing, are all comfortable in each other's presence. Some know each other well. There are some of those social exchanges and interactions. But then others maybe don't, I can see, but they're just sharing the space that they find themselves in with each other in a very relaxed and 
convivial way and that the the sounds and the the sort of sensory experiences speak to that feeling of of a, a welcoming uh, public space that that this the arena that we are all sharing is one that we 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 all respect each other's wishes and interests and so i can see a group of kids just a little bit of up the road uh they're making a bit of noise you know they're kicking a ball around but they that's okay you know that's part of being a child and and yes i have a very strong sense of of a community at ease with itself beautiful thank you thank you both so much that's uh that's a a vision to cultivate longing if ever there was one so i guess my first question for you both is about where we're at today and tim in 2007 you wrote the excellent report no fear growing up in a risk averse society which painted a grim uh picture of the demise of childhood and how society sidelines childhood i'd love to hear from you both where you think we're at in in 2022 so tim have things got better since you wrote that or have things got worse, would you say? I think that things have got better in one sense, which is that I sense a greater interest and focus uh, from adults, including decision makers, about children's lives and the sort of texture and fabric of children's everyday lives. And that some of the things that are, are quite topical now about children and nature, about children's friendships, uh, they're gaining more attention than they were 10 or 12 years ago. I have to say I'm not that optimistic that that there's been substantive improvement in those issues for children. Uh, I still think children lead far too isolated and and, uh, sedentary and, um, and indoor lives and that their mobility is certainly, the statistics show, uh, in decline, but the rate of decline, I think, is slowing up, which is good news. And as I say, that the adults, you know, are thinking more about what all this means. And so I'm more optimistic about the prospects for change than I was 10 or 12 years ago. I'd like to be optimistic, but, you know, the, the statistics and the reality are quite grim in terms of children's health and and well-being at the moment I mean they were already dire pre-pandemic and things have got worse both in terms of children's ability to get outside move about you know be active and get that sort of basic physical activity that they need and in terms of their mental health and and well-being so um like pre-pandemic, I think one in five children w- was leaving primary school clinically obese, not just overweight, but obese. And now it's one in four. <laughs> so from that point of view, it's, you know, things have got worse for children. And with all of that as well, just it's really important to also recognise that it's worse still for the children who are the least advantaged in society in other ways. Um really starkly so but I suppose that the only positive out of that is that it is hopefully ringing a loud enough alarm bell that people you know in positions of power and and responsibility will start to sit up and take notice and realize that 
something really fundamental needs to change in terms of children's lives. You know, that everything that has happened to date in terms of tinkering around the edges of children's lives and um, providing services and interventions has not been working in a really serious way. Um, And things need to be looked at much, much more systemically, much more fundamentally. And ultimately that a lot of that means looking at their environments and making sure that all children do have access to safe and healthy environments around where they live. Um, And that is extra important for children who don't have access to paid for clubs and activities and whose parents can can sort of compensate for that lack of good outside environment in terms of our public space. And I just wanted to come in there, um, Rob, and uh, just pick up on the point about the pandemic. And again, I'm trying to find a positive out of what's been a very grim period. In a way, what we've been seeing for children over the last 20, 30 years has been a kind of gradual creeping lockdown that has seen the majority of children in effect living their lives under house arrest. And that 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 insight that we all now have about about just how tough it is and and how dispiriting to be stuck indoors, that that that's a springboard for change in a way that perhaps we haven't seen up to now. It's also important to recognise that it was probably worse for children than it was for any other group in terms of their the impact on their freedom, because adults actually explicitly had the, the right to still go outside and exercise, whereas a child who wasn't able to do that independently actually was prevented from, from being outside because you could only go outside individually so it's even even more reason why we should all be now feeling that responsibility to making things right for them so what would it look like then if we were to redesign cities around the needs of children to think way beyond we'll just put a few playgrounds in here and there but to really put them at the center of transport planning of of urban planning of housing design what kind of things would we do and can you point us to any examples where these things are already happening are there any good examples of of best practice that that stand out for you alice well tim's written a whole book about this so <laughs> i'm quite happy to defer to him for the for the longer answer but i think the the key thing that we would like to see um as playing out is is that sort of first step of a recognition at a government policy level of children's need and right to be outside and to access their city their town their local environment as any other citizen can um, and for that to be the starting point for all all policy related to public space and health um, and I think if there was that starting point then you would very quickly see a sort of ripple effect in terms of the the types of streets and the types of city and the types of housing that we're building um, and it would just I think more naturally consider children um, as a high priority in all of it so in, in terms of what it would look like I think Tim's got loads of brilliant examples of where that's actually happened and what that would look like but yeah to me it would just mean 
children feel at home, they feel a sense of belonging, they feel a sense of place, and they feel safe and welcome in their local environments. I don't really care what it looks like physically, you know, it's just that that feeling as a child. You know, where I grew up, it was pretty ugly where we used to play out. We used to play out around underpasses and, you know, graffitied kind of flyovers and really run down playgrounds and that kind of thing I, that didn't matter it was that sense of you know you're allowed to be there that sense of freedom and you can just do what you want and use your imagination and make up games and hang out with kids from from all over all ages and all that kind of stuff thank you thank you uh, thank you tim well there's an encapsulation of of what i think alice and i are both thinking of and calling for, which is the idea that children are an indicator species for towns and cities. I hope that's a, a notion that will resonate with your listeners. So that, you know, in the same way that uh, if you see salmon swimming up a river, that's a sign of the health of that habitat. That if you see uh, children, you know, of different ages, with and without their parents, active and visible in public space, in streets, parks, you know, throughout a neighbourhood, that's a sign of the health of human habitats. And I think it's, but, but that's that notion, which which is popularised by um, Enrique Peñaloso, the, the kind of visionary uh, uh, leader or former mayor of Bogota, who helped to transform that city. That that's, uh, that image of the child of, as an indicator species, I think, is is at the heart of what we're calling for. And so can you give us some examples of, of, of what it would look like if we redesigned a city in that way? Yes. Um, so in my book, I propose one neighbourhood, which I've been lucky enough to visit, uh, which is the neighbourhood of Vauban, uh, which is a, an eco-suburb on the outskirts of Freiburg in Germany. And I suggest that it might be the ultimate child-friendly neighbourhood. Um, and the, the key feature of Vauban, which is sort of, relatively dense apartment living it's green it's got mixed you know shops and and workplaces but it's almost entirely car free so uh, very few residents in this suburb about five or six thousand people own a car and if you do own a car uh, you have to store it in one of a couple of peripheral car parks so so what that means is that the whole of the space between the buildings the how the apartments and the other buildings is free for public use. It's it, it's it's attractive, well landscaped uh, park spaces, uh, squares. Um, there's very good public transport, so that actually there's very little need for families to own a car. And so you can see how that sort of change in the kind of spatial priorities, shifting away from saying, okay, this, these spaces between the buildings are primarily for cars. Instead, these spaces are primarily for people, completely transforms the possibilities of public space in this neighbourhood. And every time I visited Vauban, it's been really striking how many people, and particularly children, uh, I've seen, you know, even quite young children, three and four-year-olds, uh, playing in the sand pits, uh, going into the sustainable drainage that they've got there, uh, just... Uh, Kind of putting into practice that that vision that I've described of, of children being being an indicator species. One, can I add one other thing? Mm, do 
In Bristol, we've been trying to move Bristol City Council and the whole city towards being a child-friendly city. And one of the our sort of key asks within that is that public transport and buses particularly are free for children because we've found that children who live on the outskirts of the city in particularly in poorer areas in the outskirts of the city just do not even feel like they live in this city they don't feel any sense of connection with the city centre and the cultural aspects of the city and everything that's going on there that children who are from more affluent families or who live closer to the centre just you know take for granted and really benefit from you know, as well as making sure that children can access their immediate local neighbourhood environment and feel safe and uh, welcome there. I'd really like to see, you know, the whole city opening up to children so that, you know, they can get from one side of the town to the other. They could go and, you know, join a football club club and play with kids from the other side of town or you know they can get to get to what's happening culturally in the city and, and just feel part of it feel that sort of bigger sense of belonging and what and what you do with playing out is to kind of almost create like pop-up versions of of what tim described there and i visited one of the one of the playing out streets in st george and uh I remember I was really struck by one of the dads who I was speaking to who said, well, after six months of doing this, we realised that we all quite liked each other, you know, and you got, got a, and you got a sense of, of the value and the role of kids playing out like that has in terms of binding that whole street together and that maybe it's part of the community glue that we've lost where we don't have anything to do with each other anymore because, because the kids don't play out anymore. I wonder if, if you could say a little bit about... Um, playing out and what it is that you do and how and the 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 impacts you've seen that have on the communities where it's been done yeah so when we started um playing out and came up with the kind of the play street model it was very much from the point of view of children and wanting to just give children that space and that experience of playing out near home and we weren't really thinking about the whole community so it was a sort of unexpected bonus in a way to see the way that adults also came out and um, connected with each other and there was that sort of sense you know and with children and you know the whole community kind of coming together and like you say I think the children play and play being the glue that helps the adults to connect but also it's a two-way you know, there's a two-way relationship because I think the more connected the adult community is, the more people know and trust their neighbours, which is another result of play streets, the more children are then able to to play out on an everyday basis. Um, And we have seen some streets, I think like Howard Road, the one that you went to, because it's a relatively quiet cul-de-sac anyway, that through doing play streets the community sense that was developed through that then was enough to make it kind of normalized that children would play out it sort of really demonstrates that alongside the physical environment being safe enough for children to play out that that community side of it is also really crucial and that if you've got both a sort of relatively safe environment and a strong, connected, friendly community, 
that's the kind of perfect conditions for children to feel able to play out, for the parents to feel confident to let their children play out. I think play streets do show in microcosm what we need to happen more widely. One of the questions that I was uh, exploring with parents when I was was there in the street was the degree to which the fact that their kids could now play out safely and were doing so so regularly and so enthusiastically, how they had seen that uh, impact the imagination of uh, of the kids. Because you know the, the the overarching theme of this podcast is how do we rebuild our collective societal imagination? How do we build a kind of imagination infrastructure, if you like? I wonder uh, how both of you would think that a city redesigned around children and a city redesigned around play would boost uh, and expand the imaginative capacity of of that city's residents? Uh, Tim? That's a good question. It's a good way of phrasing it. I I think uh, what underpins the vision that we're trying to flesh out is, is... is changing priorities. It's it's moving away from a city uh, that has a short-term, narrow economic focus on the movement of goods uh, and rapid, efficient, uh, allegedly, uh, transport, and on squeezing and extracting every last bit of monetary value out of every piece of land. And instead arguing for priorities around health, uh, joy, community contact, uh, social life. And, you know, those those aspects of of our all of our everyday lives that that, that actually we, you know, we as individuals and as families and as community members most value and that are particularly important for children. Uh, And and I guess, uh, you know, one of the things that that maybe we'll come and talk about a, a bit more is how bringing children into the conversation, bringing a children's lens into how cities work is a way of uh, elevating those conversations, of, 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 of framing questions about who and what cities are for that, that I think is essential. So, so we're talking about children, but we're not just talking about children. We're thinking about our future and what the cities, our towns and cities are going to, to be like just as your exercise invited us to do. We're thinking about uh, older people or people with limited mobility, people who don't have access to cars, uh, poorer families, and seeing the child as a kind of symbol of some of those uh, challenges and how those challenges can be solved when we think about what cities should be like and how they should be changing. Fabulous. Alice? So I I can think of two separate answers to your question. (laughs) One is that I think we've really got to start recognising children as active citizens and um, agents of change themselves. You know, they've got feelings, they've got ideas, they've got really good ideas, (laughs) you know, about their lives and about the world and about society that we should be listening to and taking seriously and that's not the same as putting responsibility on children for changing things. I think that's really, really important. You know, we as adults are responsible for 
resolving the problems that you know we've we've created and all of that and children need to just be allowed to be children but at the same time I think we can respect their their views and their feelings and when they talk about you know what they want to see happen we need to we need to listen and take that seriously and you know try to facilitate so that's one way of you know respecting I suppose the imagination that children do have and learning from it helping it to kind of improve all of our lives and our reality Um, and then the other response that I had to your question was for children I think their lives have become you know compared to our childhoods very organized and controlled and restricted and kind of activity based and that is not conducive to free imagination to creativity to all of those things that I think you know I took for granted as a child and that have probably really helped shape me as an adult it's kind of having that freedom to follow your own ideas follow your own interests to um, get out and explore to have adventures to you know get into scrapes to be with who you want to be with all of that that sort of freedom that does allow children's imaginations to develop and run free and you both mentioned uh the role of children in this because many of the most imaginative spaces that 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 kids have are spaces they create themselves rather than spaces that are created for them uh dens and secret places and tunnels and all sorts of things how might we best create the kind of spaces that enable them to do that safe supporting spaces where they're in charge where they're the boss where they can shape those spaces uh large or small uh, alice i mean i think part of it is not over managing spaces so when my kids were younger before i started playing out i got involved in our local park actually with Ingrid who's now my co-director at Playing Out so we've been doing this kind of work together for a long time Um, and one of the key things that we were trying to make happen in the park was for the council to leave branches lying around to not over control the space not to make it too tidy to have a policy that um, allowed for those what play people call loose parts um so just things like branches and leaves and logs and similarly i think the the approach to to risk in public spaces which tim is the absolute expert on so again i will defer to him to talk about that but i think having a different approach to to risk within public spaces would really enable children to use those spaces in a more creative and imaginative way yeah i remember as a kid there was a, an adventure playground i think it was in richmond or somewhere in london that i used to go to that was all just made out of planks all nailed together today it would be shut down as being horrendously dangerous i'm sure but it was absolutely fabulous and it was kids space and you could add bits to it and it was just fantastic uh, tim your thoughts yes uh, uh yes to a, a bit of mess um i mean mess is an interesting idea uh uh, you know what adults think of as messy and what children think of messy can often be quite different and adventure playgrounds really speak to that but i th- i think I, I i'm happy to wear the hat of someone who flies the flag for a, a thoughtful approach to risk but it's not really necessarily about you know 
pushing kids to take risks. It's about accepting uncertainty in children's lives and the value of giving them some everyday autonomy of, you know, that moment by moment sense that they are in control, that they're calling the shots and, and, and going where their own imaginations and inclinations take them. And being prepared to allow that uncertainty in uh, without, of course, being reckless. And that's a difficult, that can be a difficult balancing act. But the, the reason it's so important, well, there are several reasons. One is, this is how all of us as human beings, we gain a sense of our own self-efficacy. That's the, the psychologist term, a sense that we are beings who have some influence on the world, who can make a difference. And, you know, you don't have to think very long to realize how important that is right now. But also that we learn to be more resilient and to cope with an uncertain world, to deal with challenging situations. And that those, those sort of skills and competencies are actually fundamental to being you know, a, a kind of happy and healthy person in the world. And that, that by perhaps in a well-meaning way, trying to remove you know, the threat that arises or the uncertainty from the situations children find themselves in, we undermine their own ability to learn how to deal with with those uncertainties. And ultimately, that's that's counterproductive. And I, again, I think that idea is gaining currency, it's gaining ground um, in recent years. And that's that's one thing that I take some encouragement from in, in, in the, the conversations about children and childhood. Great. Thank you. So so my last question is, what would it take to get urban planners, designers, architects and developers to put the needs of children first? What kind of shift in their thinking might be required and how might we get them there, Alice? That is a question that we have for the last, you know, 10 or more years. How do we get them to, um, to just recognize what seems very obvious I think to people like Tim and me and a lot of other people that you know that children's lives aren't um aren't what they should be um and that things need to change fundamentally and that policy is part of that you know that trying to sort of appeal to people on a human level as parents and as people that have been children themselves is part of it um the statistics you know should be giving people a kick up the ass but I mean <laughs> it, it, it's not always evident that that's the case I don't know we keep sort of banging banging away and banging on doors and you know trying to to say these things I think one thing that's powerful about play streets and what we do is that it does demonstrate in a very visceral sense that what's possible and how things could be different for children how simple that is in a way that what children need is essentially freedom to go outside their front door and connect with other children in their street in their neighborhood in their estate to feel part of their communities to be able to run around to be able to use their imaginations be creative and all of that and that that can bring enormous amounts of benefit both sort of physical and mental and emotional well-being and development in all sorts of ways so I think probably just doing more of that doing more of the positive stuff that actually shows 
what's needed and what needs to change in a in a bigger way and the benefit that that can have not just for children but for for everybody for the whole community thank you thank you tim well i'm a fan of inviting adults uh to think about their own childhoods and the kind of freedoms that they used to enjoy when they were growing up and maybe how that's changed for for children today that needs to be done with care because it can easily slip into nostalgia um, or worse. But I think it helps to, to get an emotional connection with what we're talking about. This is actually really about us living our lives in a more healthy and meaningful and engaged way. Also, we need to tell stories and that's what I try and do in my writing compelling stories about the power of this idea the power of the of, of, of child-friendly urban planning and design and in particular and this is going to be very real I'm, I know for lots of your listeners that you know we all face and cities in particular face huge challenges in you know moving to a net zero world and and that can feel very frightening and can feel to people as if they're going to lose a lot. But what, the power of thinking about children in this is that it helps us to realise that we have a lot to gain by that transition. Um, that, you know, uh, just as we imagined at the beginning of this uh, conversation, the neighbourhoods that we will be living in and our children we will be growing up in could be really pleasant, sociable, vibrant, green, convivial places what a sustainable neighborhood looks like it looks a lot like a child-friendly neighborhood and so those are the kind of stories if you like the kind of ways of fleshing out this picture that I try and use in my work with urban planners with decision makers with mayors that help them realize that those challenges that are already you know right in front of them will actually be made easier or more tractable more soluble by thinking harder about children and the state that children have and the potential of of children to help come up with solutions. Thank you both so much. I think I think we've set a record in this podcast for the use of the word convivial in one podcast, which is one of my favourite words. So uh, I've loved that. So for my deepest, deepest thanks uh, to Tim and Alice for, for joining me here on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us, Rob. That was really enjoyable. Yes, thanks, Rob. It was uh, very stimulating and uh, great to have the chance to have this conversation. So my thanks to you for listening as well and for hopefully supporting this podcast by becoming a patron. And lastly, thank you to Ben Adicott, our producer here, for his audio magic weaving. We are forever in his debt. See you next time. Mm-hmm.